welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome to the first episode after relaunching our channel at Video Analytics 101. We're shuffling things up a bit. We're changing the format to more uh, podcast style where we invite really personalities from uh, the field of AI and visual video analytics and machine learning. And we talk more about the history, the opinions, uh, and the AI field in, in general. And today I'm very happy to have Raymond Fu with me. Raymond is the is a professor at Northeastern University in Boston. Northeastern University definitely is a top tier university. And um, to say that he is uh, that he contributed a great deal to our field is probably an understatement. So I'm super happy to have Raymond here with me. Welcome, Raymond. Thank you, Florent. Thanks for the invitation for this. Yeah, so uh, I mean, this is really cool, and it's really great that you're here with us, kicking off this new series, uh, the relaunch of the podcast. Um, we want to focus more on on the history and 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 more what you've been doing in this field and and what you're working on. So maybe to start this off, maybe you can tell us a little bit what's your life story, where you're coming from, how did you get into the field of AI? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I'm a uh, currently I'm a professor at the Northeastern University at Boston. Um, before that, I was um, I was indeed in both industry and academia. Uh, I was working in BBN Technology, which is in Cambridge, um, as a thermal contractor company. Before that, I graduated from uh, University of uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, then, after I stayed in BBN Technology for two years as a research scientist, I built the the first computer vision team there. I, I switched back to academia uh, back to 2000, uh, 2010. So in 2010, I joined uh, University of Buffalo, which is a state university of uh, New York. Um, I was there for uh, two years, another two years, as an uh, assistant professor in the field of computer vision, machine learning. Um, and in 2000, since 2012, uh, I joined uh, Northeastern until today. So I'm doing research um, in most of my, my life so far um, in the field of AI. And in the meanwhile, I commercialize some of the research uh, outcome uh, as company. So I'm a professor. In the meanwhile, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, actually, it's one of the reasons why I, I found it so exciting that you agreed to, to join us because you have this unique mix of academia and, and being a serial entrepreneur, which is really cool because um, like advancing research is one thing, but uh, applying it somewhere and making it a use of it essentially is so important as well. And this combination is, is pretty cool. I yeah. Think. Um, uh, but before we go into this, um, what made you choose uh, this field of AI or machine learning? Was there something specific? It sounds like you got in there through computer vision somehow. Yeah, so I think I started my research uh, experience by uh, doing some um, uh, kind of side project um, image processing. Uh, indeed, when I was undergraduate uh, a student, I actually studied communication, studied wireless. Uh, back to uh, early uh, stage of uh, 20, uh, 2020, uh, 20 uh, uh, century. So indeed, I was I was more like a big fan of wireless communication, uh, cell phones, those kind of technology. But later on, we had uh, some experience, some um, uh, opportunity to join some side project 
in my previous research institution. Um, so my early project was on face recognition. Um, back to 1999 or 20, uh, 2000. So those, uh, those periods of time, face recognition was kind of starting, uh, launching. Um, AI is not a, uh, it's not a popular yet, but uh, people start looking into computer vision applications. I think that actually motivates my uh, research interest. And starting from that, I concentrated more of my uh, research uh, interest and effort on computer vision uh, until today. Yeah, I, I, I remember I, I also come from computer vision and I, I started in 2001. And back then, uh, for us as students, artificial intelligence, yes, somehow existed, but more like a, like a remote field. Yes, it's a research topic, but it was not a big topic, really. It was like computer vision was somehow the big thing. And we were talking about also Viola Jones, face detection. That was the back, big thing back then. And somehow, like the, the field of machine learning became so radically faster and, and better that it entered computer vision and somehow took over. But I remember that back then, the computer vision was a big thing and not, not AI. Exactly. Uh, you know, um, to echo that, uh, I still have a, a strong connection with uh, Michael Jones, who was the well, doctor, oh, cool. uh, who is a researcher in Merle here at Cambridge. So I still have a send of students with group to do research because, you know, I started by doing face recognition, face detection, um, follow his uh, early seminal work. Um, but when I talk to the, the modern students, the, the new generation of students, uh, seems nobody knows that uh, uh, the detector um, yeah. yeah, but but back then it was revolutionary. Yes, exactly. Well, it was in in every digital camera there was real chance. Yes. And, cool. So um, okay, so today you are a professor at Northeastern. You publish tons. I saw you have so many citations. It's it's really crazy. Can you give us an idea what you're currently working on? So what are the hot topics right now in your lab? Yeah. So my lab has uh, multiple projects. Uh, most of them are computer vision, uh, visual language models, uh, some machine learning topics as well. I think we're interested in uh, topics around high-level human uh, intelligence uh, performed by machine. So we're we are interested in uh, video understanding, uh, uh, video captioning, and also um, learning uh, through large models uh, obviously, most of the research are around deep learning models um, through big data uh, as, a, as a training set. So we're uh, interested in a variety of applications uh, in industry, such as security defense applications, uh, consumer space, uh, medical applications, um, mm -hmm. autonomous uh, intelligence, autonomous car, autonomous talking. Um, and, and the, our application and the commercialization are through variety of industry as well, such as, uh, TV rating industry, like advertisement industry, uh, such as, uh, beauty, uh, uh, care, uh, and aging. And so all, all type of, even financial, so all type of application. Okay. Interesting. So it's, it's all. It sounds like it's still very much um, video or image based. Yes, right. Uh, it's most yeah. cases uh, image, uh, video, uh, language, text. 
Oh, you do natural yeah, language. Yeah, we do some process. natural language uh, processing as okay. well. Um, maybe a, a question out of personal interest. I have an ongoing bet with a friend of mine. Uh, when autonomous cars re really will take off on our streets, do you have any opinion? Like a few years ago, I was super excited. Um, five years ago, it sounded like it would be very soon, but now we start hearing stuff like Tesla autopilot not really working properly, and it somehow hasn't taken off as as we thought. Do you, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I think uh, autonomous driving is definitely the the big trend and also the future of, of human life. And when I start my research career, uh, my previous groups they are actually working on autonomous cars, even back to 1998 uh, uh, and 2000, those, those times. Uh, mm -hmm. even, even I was not involved in those projects, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of experienced, you know, I see what they do every day. Uh, even until today, we see the real product uh, running on the road, and I do have a, uh, many friends and colleagues, they are in that industry, the driving industry. Um, I see a big revolution in the last five years. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, most of my friends, they, they have the Tesla cars and they have a, uh, all type of other brand of cars with autonomous function. Um, so I think it's, it's emerging and in the meanwhile, it's prevalent right now. Um, I'm, I'm kind of positive to, to see the, the future using AI in the autonomous, uh, auto industry. And I, I do, I do, see, I do think, um, the those kind of product will be more prevalent in the future and mm. will replace many of our uh, driving behaviors and experience. I I find it hard in general to um, in technology to to make predictions because we always make predictions based on our past uh, data and experiences. And sometimes when there's fast development, we try we tend to extrapolate this and we'll think that it goes as fast in the future. And sometimes it does, and then sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's really it's really hard to say. And then you have these uh, revolutions uh, like ChatGPT, where everybody's like, oh, "Wow, my God, super excited!" Yes. That suddenly, something like this is possible. Um, so it, somehow it goes in steps. I have to feel like in plateaus, and then uh, that's how we progress. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, speaking of ChatGPT, do you do you think something similar will happen soon in with with visual uh, information with images? I mean, obviously we, we have uh, generative networks also for, for video and images, but this watershed moment of ChatGPT I haven't seen yet. So I'm wondering if this will come soon. Yeah, I believe it's on the way um, because we, we do have uh, several research uh, lines in our lab. Um, actually, we are looking into uh, video language models and also looking into uh, uh, conversation um, and captioning uh, based on visuals. So eventually, uh, I think the chat GPT will be um, uh, will be the, the foundation for many new GPTs, like Virion GPT, like Open GPT. Mm -hmm. um, in, in my lab, we have some research around um, video understanding or image understanding. It's also large models. It's also transformer-based models. And, and, uh, our goal is to mimic human intelligence. So when someone see an image or see a video, we can describe what's going on in the image and the video instantly. And so in the future, I believe we could also have that type of vision GPT. And 
the intelligence will actually interact with humans, uh, they can instantly tell us what they say, what they see in the, in the image, in the video. So this can be um, applied to many domains. Uh, conversation, intelligence, um, it's going to be prevalent in our daily life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I mean, we are, uh, like, we as a company and industry are obviously in the video surveillance industry. So this could, of course, have huge implications if, if something like this is being applied to, to city surveillance. Um, and I'm sure it will have very interesting implications. For example, um, we had discussions around, uh, is it, an, is it a use case to describe a video scene automatically? So uh, a security operator doesn't have to watch the video anymore. It basically gets a text describing what's happening. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure if this is a use case, but it, it could be. And of course, there there is a big potential of, of misuse as well, like like with any potential um, technology. So this will be interesting when this AI becomes more powerful. How do you apply it and, and how do you ethically apply yeah. it as well? Yeah, so I think um, in the last uh, uh, 10 years, uh, computer vision uh, field has a big jump um, in research and the industrial application. Uh, I think it, it, it's all about the timing. Uh, ChatGPT is like, uh, has been iterated several rounds of versions, and now it's, it's, uh, it's in a stage that people think that can definitely uh, pass the, the turning test. Um, but for computer vision, I think it's on the way uh, because when you see the trajectory in the last 10 years of the, the growth of uh, computer vision research effort and also the achievement, I think it's just timing. Uh, probably in the next one, one year, two year, you will see a lot of uh, new uh, vision models uh, coming up and applied to use them in consumer space as well. So, uh, so, um, the Turing test for a visual GPT, do you think it would be like, for example, like, uh, like a conversation, um, with, with a webcam and it's about being as real as possible? Is that what the Turing test for visual things would be? I think for visual things is, uh, more like a mimic human vision. So for our human oh, vision, yeah. yeah. So to mimic our human vision and especially for the, uh, high level human vision, so like cognition, exactly, mm -hmm. and cognition. Um, so we, for, for our human beings, uh, over 90% of information, uh, we receive every day from vision. Uh, language is our, uh, function that we can communicate. So we describe what we see from that 90% of information we acquire every day. Um, so I think vision is, uh, is more important, uh, in terms of information, uh, analysis and collection, uh, so in the future, vision and language definitely will be combined as the joint intelligence. Um, and they're going to motivate each other's research. For example, the chat GPT model definitely will motivate the vision GPT. Um, because those kind of rewarding models from the chat GPT that they use the reinforcement learning, uh, to have a human involved and a human in the loop to reward any desired, uh, response or undesired response from the GPT. Uh, that's going to motivate computer vision research as well. And I think mm -hmm. some recent research um, from big companies and research labs, they found out if we also have those reinforcement learning 
mechanism in the pump driven models, also large models. Uh, it will also significantly enhance the intelligence and cognition of the driven model. Um, so I think those fields are intertwined and they motivate each other. How, um, I'm not so familiar with this. How, how do you reinforce the learning for, um, for seeing understanding, for example? Is that with a human in the loop or how would you I think that? it's more like human in the loop and when we in system or AI system provide some outcome or results and a human will be involved in tell, tell the AI system, uh, which is expected, which is not. So like yeah. a rewarding signal. So we send those rewarding signal to the AI model, then the AI model will uh, make adjustments inside. So it's more like okay. you may make human. So you can imagine if the the human in the loop, if the human have different background, they may train the AI model in a way that favor um, the human. Yeah, it's just a, a, another way to introduce bias. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, yeah. Big topic, of course. Uh, and I was just thinking again of our industry because uh, still nowadays uh, we have the security operators sitting in front of screens, uh, looking at the screens all day. Yeah. And this is something where they could really help, um, where they, they can pro provide feedback to a model and reinforce it this way because they have the domain experience for ex exactly this kind of task. Yeah. So, um, and in a way, at the same time, they will make this kind of job redundant, but their job will probably transform into something else, into, um, into make, making this reasoning of the output of the model. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, we have to go away from watching videos all the time. It's just a stupid task. Mm -hmm. Just as it is stupid to drive a car. It's every time I sit in the car, I'm thinking, what kind of lost human potential drives around on the streets in the whole world every day? It's just mind-boggling. We need to get That's right. Place. That's right. I think that the expectation um, of, uh, of our uh, AI researchers, they hope the AI uh, in the future can be assistant of uh, everybody and not necessarily replace our job, but, uh, you know, at least the assistant and help us. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, sure, jobs will transform. I mean, no job stays the same, especially if you get assistance. But I, I think so, too. I mean, AI is not here to replace anybody. It's really to to help humankind yeah. and that um, we, we will just get more efficient and uh, and improve our, our everyday lives as it is today already. I mean, what our phones are doing is, is amazing. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, uh, you as a serial entrepreneur. I find this really interesting because you went into, uh, I think, first academia, then industry, then academia again, and now you're also uh, launching startups. So can you talk a little bit about what, Companies you have founded, um, what did they do, and um, and how did it get to it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, like I said, in, in my early uh, research career, I was focusing on uh, human face analysis, like face recognition, uh, uh, facial understanding, and attribute uh, recognition, and human behavior analysis and human AI interaction. So, my uh, in my early stage of, of uh, entrepreneurship, so in my first company uh, is. Is actually called a, a Peter Insight. That's a Boston-based uh, company, and we start from Boston back to 2015, uh, around that time, mm -hmm. uh, 14, 15, around that time. Um, so it's a TV rating company. Um, the technology is to use uh, 
computer vision as a tool to collect um, human attention on the TV screen. Um, so basically, uh, we have those um, camera systems, we have the vision system to collect mm -hmm. uh, human attention. And so the attention, uh, basically, we're going to recognize uh, who they are, recognize their, um, their focus of attention, um, and recognize their behavior. And the company is still there. Rent is in good shape. Actually, uh, after several rounds of fundraising, and right now is uh, providing um, good service in the industry. Um, and my second company for the Joran, that's the uh, Northeastern Spinout company. Um, the company is also technology driven, and we apply facial recognition techniques to the beauty industry. So we actually um, use facial analysis, um, augmented uh, reality type of application. So we simulate cosmetic products on uh, facial images. Um, so customers can actually try on different cosmetic products like color, texture in real time on their face. They use cameras basically. Um, so this can help those cosmetic companies for their online sales. Um, so the company was acquired by Shiseido in 2017. That's one of the largest um, cosmetic beauty company. Um, and after that, uh, we have a recent startup company also spin out from Northeastern called the AI Innovation Lab. So this is another uh, technology driven company and we focus on computer vision on the edge. So we mm -hmm. build lightweight models, lightweight computer vision models and so that many of the uh, uh, sophisticated models can be moved from cloud server to the user end to edge devices such as cell phones. Um, so we have applications like human tracking in real time, assess um, human movement, track all the joints uh, on human body. So we use that for rehabilitation, remote rehabilitation. Uh, remote fitness. Uh, we also use that for uh, medical, autonomous, uh, all type of application. So, okay, but, but yeah, AI on the edge is very interesting. It's it's really a trend that we definitely see in our industry as well. Um, why do you think this is a trend? Why is more and more moving to the edge? Yeah, I think around 10 years ago, um, everything is centralized. When we have those smartphones, uh, you want uh, all the apps um, uh, on the phone, uh, but in the meanwhile, you know we we don't have enough power, computational power, on the device. So a lot of uh, elements or a lot of algorithm or models are running on the cloud. That's why the cloud and the server those are uh, getting popular since ten years ago. Uh, now uh, everything is like. Uh, from moved from centralized uh, to decentralized, uh, from decentralized to centralized. So basically, the users, they want to own their data. And they generate data every day, but they don't want the data to be sent to the cloud and running on the cloud. And then they have all the service coming from the cloud. So they want to move the functions happening on their smartphone. Um, so that, that centralization of those functions require us, uh, require our researchers to figure out the best way that we could balance the the models, the algorithms, the tools, 
and where they're sitting, right? They're sitting on the user end or they're sitting on the cloud. And and also uh, nowadays we, all, we always talk about privacy, the privacy issue. Mm -hmm. And if the data, uh, if we don't collect a lot of personal data and all the data collection and the processing happening on the smart devices on the user end, that's gonna mitigate that concern as well. Mm -hmm. I, uh, to me, at least in our industry, I'm talking to video about video. It's to me, it's also a cost factor because I have to think that the public clouds at uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and so on. They're still very costly um, in terms of GPU power, especially when you process video. So I think there's also like a cost pressure to move to the edge to make it more efficient. Yeah. But that, of course, it, it might change. Uh, but today I see this also as a factor that's just expensive. Yeah. I think another um, reason is because our um, edge devices are uh, more powerful than before. So mm -hmm. it has more capacity to run uh, new functions, uh, algorithms, softwares. Um, that's another uh, foundation change and also motivation for those kind of research. And But I think it re probably requires also to to add other features in the backend. So things like, um, uh, I don't know, collecting data for training is more difficult if you do it in the edge um, or diagnostics data, all these kind of things probably require different backends if you want to do it in the edge. Yes, I think uh, cloud is still useful right now. It's just uh, mm -hmm. probably it's going to play a different role in the future, mm -hmm. uh, like you just said. Because currently, when we talk about those GPT or those kind of uh, wonderful intelligent tools, they, they are actually relying on, on large models and those large models they are trained with a huge amount of data. Um, this task cannot happen on edge devices. Definitely has to happen in cloud. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, definitely if you deploy something on the edge, it's probably rather uh, yeah, pre-trained models and supervised somehow. Yeah. Um, talking about data sets, at least we from the industry, at least as a large provider, um, we have we have a lot of legal concerns regarding data sets, or we, we try to be ethical about this. But at the same time, I have the feeling that there's um, there's a lot of gray zone and there's a lot of um, uh, like misuse of this as well. Um, there's a lot of uh, res uh, the data only for research purposes, not so much for commercial use. Um, it's unclear. I'm personally unclear. I have no idea about ChatGPT how how the underlying data is licensed. No idea if that's like researched or considered or not. What's your opinion on this? Have you seen any um, any trend to um, to have a firm legal opinion on, on on licensing data sets or how should companies deal with this problem? Yeah, like you said, I I, I think uh, that's uh, for many of the data collection, it's a, it's a gray area. Um, indeed, uh, for research, for academic research, um, we have certain protocols. To collect data, um, and at different level of management and, and policy, um, when we have the when we have research, for example, if in academia uh, for medical research, um, biology research, we have those ARB uh, protocols. So we have certain management for human subjects for animals, and um, so when we collect the data and the purpose of using the data is also constrained. We can only do research. And based on those data, I think in industry it's a different story because in industry it's profit for profit. And uh, nowadays, 
uh, all the model needs a large amount of data. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of research in the AI field collect data from public. For example, the, in the public space, in the social media space, mm -hmm. uh, there are tons of data every day. But uh, it's always a debate. Is that uh, uh, it's always an uh, ethical issue as well. Uh, can we use all the public data for training and build a new product? Um, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, so it's still a gray area. Um, people are looking into that because um, many of the companies they have the research department. They can always um, consider part of their uh, usage of the of the data is for research only. And when they have the risk outcome, they probably can use the research outcome um, as a foundation to build a new product. So from this process, mm -hmm. they're part of their activity is really research. So it's probably uh, feasible and reasonable to using those public data. Um, I think going forward in the future, um, people may have more um, common sense um, and also have uh, more commonly agreed um, policy or protocol to manage the, the data because it's a big issue now. And we generate every day, it's data every day, and but we also concern about the breach of the privacy of the data. Yeah, there's, um, I think there's still a lot of uh, legal, um, legal precedent to be made. I, I recently heard that there are lawsuits against stable diffusion because they use artists' work to create art, like new art in the same style as an, of an artist. And I can understand that artists are pissed because they spend all their lives to perfecting their style, their individual style, and suddenly something else can copy yeah. it. Uh, but on the other hand, yes, it's, I mean, the work is not in the model. It's, the model is just weights. I mean, it's, it's using this input data. It's, yeah, it's a difficult question. And, um, I can, I can say in our space, I believe that startups have more freedom to use data because they need to get into the market fast. But especially if you're a large company and you need to, um, need to have products that are sold globally and at scale, you need to make sure that all the underlying data is properly licensed. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult topic. And I think we're still not at the end of this. Exactly. I think it's also relevant to the, the local, um, a law. Um, I think a different region mm -hmm. of the world, they have different law to constrain people using those data. Um, I think in US, they have, they have policy, they have laws and in Europe, they have, in Asia, they have. So, uh, that's why in different regions, people may have, uh, uh, they have a different tolerance of using those public data. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, for many applications, you need data from, from everywhere. I mean, you don't want to be biased towards uh, one space. Yeah. So, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And it's probably something um, you have to take a regional look at, yes. um, how to collect data and where. Um, I mean, you know, I'm coming from, from Europe, and Europe doesn't really have a... Um, it's not famous for commercializing research. We're very bad at this uh, compared to the U.S., so I'm a little bit uh, interested. How does it work? Um, you you spun out two or three startups from from your lab. How does it work? How do you come up with the idea? Is um, like are, is the team the students? Um, does the university license something to the startup? How does that work? Yeah. So I think uh, here and um, uh, in US, um, especially in the region I'm here and I'm in the East Coast, and sometimes I also had a, a collaborators in the West Coast. Uh, I think the in the U.S. the system um, uh, commercialization is, is 
it's actually um, appreciated um, because we're going to generate a social impact. Uh, we're going to uh, convert and translate our research outcome as a real product or service to benefit people um, in the economy. So I think this is a, um, definitely supportive here. Um, U.S. government, especially in, uh, in, in the uh, funding system, actually they have a strong support for um, research-oriented uh, commercialization. Um, in National Science Foundation here, they have a, a, a funding called SDIR, SPDR. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, especially supporting small business, and those small business, they're not they're not necessarily coming from a research institution. Could be from anywhere in the U.S. and and they can submit a proposal um, and uh, submit a proposal with some research-oriented technology innovation, and then they're going to be uh, funded. By the government, and those money are not that little funding, so it's uh, definitely preferred by by those startup companies. And once they mm -hmm. they enter um, those phase uh, one stage, then they have opportunity to further expand their research and product development to enter second round. So the second round is a big deal; it's like million level support. Um, as I know, many high tech companies here. They are, they run on government funding and, and beyond National Science Foundation, there are other funding agencies that also provide those type of small business grants. It's all nine dollars. And also here, uh, here I feel, um, uh, beyond the government, uh, in the venture capital space, um, commercialization and the startup is, is also very active. Those are kind of activities and it's very, uh, very broad, very prevalent, and people here, they love to talk to each other and with new ideas, brand new ideas, and they, they build connections very easily. And I think the ecosystem here is kind of, uh, has been there for a long time, pretty much sure. Um, if someone has a good idea, but you can always find uh, tips, find uh, an incubator somewhere to support your idea. And, and uh, how does it work? Um... Are there like standard agreements with the university to license the technology? How how is the university involved in such? A yeah, so scenario? here uh, I think different universities they have a different policy for commercialization. Uh, some universities, so obviously it's all from uh, IP, and and also I believe the usually if the research coming from the university, um, the IP owned by the university by institution. Mm -hmm. And then the faculty could, uh, in most cases, they license, they license the uh, IP, but they're inventors. So they license IP from the university and then they commercialize. So it's, it's more like a joint, uh, venture, uh, joint startup by the, the PI, um, inventor and also university. So those type of, uh, startups have been, um, quite a bit here in, in Boston area and in the Bay area. Um, uh, Midwest also as well. So, but the university is not is not a shareholder. It's providing license. Right? I think um, it's case by case. I I I believe uh, in most of the cases the university will have some shares. Um, it's it's just uh, you know uh, it's, it's it's all about uh, how much they own. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, but in most of the cases, uh, university they are nonprofit, so they are not. Uh, Using that as a as income, it's, it's more like a supportive, and also it's it's for um, um, 
for their general impact and involvement. I think their involvement depends on their university policy. I heard different universities, um, their policies are indeed very different. Um, it's also based on their culture, their history as well. Mm -hmm. And um, and how did it happen with you personally that you spun out? Is like did you work with students or was it a specific um, idea? Did it come out of a research project? Yeah, I I, I had uh, several startup startup before, like I mentioned. Uh, some are not from my students. Some are from my students. So I had a mm -hmm. uh, project or startup before uh, without. Um, it's not from university. It's outside. Uh, it's just based on my uh, spare time uh, activity. I, I do have startup totally spin up from university. So students have been uh, involved and they are inventor. They are uh, founding members. Um, so it's happened all the time. I think Northeastern University, my university, um, is uh, it's is making a, a good model here. The fact they have enough flexibility uh, when they um, uh, startup companies and those kind of entrepreneurship has been supported here um, with different generation of I would say the policy and also the group of people here they help us to start um, the business uh, here we have those IT transition department um, they help us to build the whole pipeline of um, mm -hmm. moving research outcome from the lab to the Consumer space to the founding space. And, and uh, in the meanwhile, we have a clear traffic handbook that support us. You know, you can follow all the rules there. Uh, we start a company or a business and manage your time. Yeah, I, I, it is really cool. I, I find it so important to, to have a, to, the university should really be the institution that supports this, that brings, uh, that brings research into into industry and it's okay if they participate. I mean of course they wanted to research. Um but to have like often here in Europe I have the feeling that it's almost like a, a fight that universities are fighting against um startups commercializing things and they are they are somehow afraid that something is taken away from them, which I think is totally the wrong approach. Um and also I, I think it's interesting for the research departments as well to to get this input as how how things are being used and to to get out in the real world right because sometimes if you just spend your time in research conferences um it might be also hard to see how people are actually using technology and what use cases are out there um yeah so i find this super interesting um maybe we're almost at the end uh do you have any kind of prediction what kind of uh, big innovation do you think we will see this or next year? So what what is the next ChatGPT? Yeah, I think, um, uh, so right now I think uh, uh, I'm definitely interested in the, the direction of robotics. I think uh, we're going to have a big uh, jump in the robotics industry uh, because of those uh, those innovations from natural language processing, from computer vision, from machine learning. Uh, uh, because robotics is, is, a, is a system integrating all this type of intelligence. Uh, so here at Boston, there's the Boston Dynamics. So people have seen those videos. They have those robotics uh, running around like a walking like human humanoid uh, uh, robot. I think if those uh, natural language processing components, computer vision components, machine learning components can be integrated together into those type of uh, robots, 
you can imagine the, the next the couple of years, we will see humanoid uh, robots probably walking on the street and the chat to the people serving the restaurant yeah. and uh, help us to, you know, on many services. Um, yeah, that's, I, I, I see that's the future. Hmm. Yeah, that's very cool. Even, especially also in, in previous years, we have seen time and, time and time again where there's something new coming out and you really have the feeling of living in the future. Yeah. And it continues, it continues to happen. So today it might really sound weird that robots are walking on the streets, but I guess you're right. In a few years, we'll see. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else to add um, before we end this? Um, yeah, I think this is a very, very uh, interesting conversation with you. I, I, I really enjoy it. Um, indeed, this is my uh, uh, first podcast, and, and I, I think that I had a very good experience. Uh, I'd love to do more in the future. Yeah, well, thank you for joining. It has been super interesting, um, especially to talk to someone who is so um, deep into this revolution that's happening right now. You don't get this chance every day. So, yeah, thank you for joining. And uh, I hope our viewers enjoyed as well. I, I'm sure of it. Um, and, yeah, I'll see my viewers next time. So thank you yeah, again. Yeah, thank you.